great Odin's raven. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. This is, this is ridiculous. Okay, I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. Hello and welcome to the FilmPulse.net podcast. This is episode number 62. My name is Adam. Kevin won't be joining us this week since he's in D.C. and I'm currently at the Sarasota Film Festival. But we have three great interviews lined up. First, I'll be speaking with director Andrew Leivold on his Kickstarter campaign, The Search for Wang Wang. Then Gina and I will be having a conversation with director Shane Carruth on his new film, Upstream Color. And finally, I'll be speaking with Joey Ansah on his Kickstarter project, Street Fighter Assassin's Fist. Without further ado, let's kick things off and have a chat with Andrew Leivold and talk about some Wang Wang. I was thinking that for, you could tell the listeners first, who is Wang Wang? Wang Wang was, uh, since unfortunately he's no longer with us, was the, uh, the two foot nine James Bond of the Philippines for a very short, and you know, I, don't mean, I don't mean that facetiously, uh, for a very short period of time in the early 80s in the Philippines. And um, inadvertently became, uh, you know, a, a, probably the most popular Philippine export outside of Imelda Marcos's shoe collection uh, <laughs> before sinking into complete obscurity and uh, anonymity and um, uh, passing away in the early 90s. Uh, and, 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 of course, his, his story was such a mystery that when, uh, when I'd first become, um, you know, rather taken with Wang Wang, uh, at the time there was no information on him whatsoever. And when you watch a Wang Wang film, you can't help but think, man, where did this little guy come from? You know, what was his name? What happened to him after he stopped making movies? You know, was he still alive? And none of those questions could be answered until I actually went to the Philippines and started digging. And even in the Philippines, the people who worked with him couldn't even tell me what his name was, what his real name was. So, uh, <laughs> It, it, it was a, a serious journey into the heart of darkness um, to, to try and uncover the true story behind Wang Wang. And uh, let, let's just say that that lifelong obsession was finally able to be uh, fulfilled uh, in the strangest of ways. Now, I remember seeing, uh, um, was it For Your Height Only, I believe, was yeah. the one that, I've, that I saw. How many, how many movies did he actually make? Last count, there are 12. Wow. <laughs> there were three, three dubbed into English. There's a sequel to For Your Height Only called The Impossible Kid, which is fairly easily um, obtainable through most download sites. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's Wing Wing returning as Agent Double O. There's also a Western called The Wild Wild Wing, where he's not <laughs> quite a spy. He's more like a, a two-foot-nine government agent running around this kind of parallel universe version of a Mexican border town. And uh, he's got a Gatling gun. It's about three times the size of him mowing down row after row of, of, uh, you know, Filipinos dressed in sombreros uh, while, while a a tribe of pygmy Indians, you know, which are all waiters from the midget themed restaurant in Manila, uh, you know, sort of coming over the hill with, toy bows and arrows it's just astounding oh man <laughs> and it, turns, it turns out that it wasn't the only midget western that Wang Wang made there was a there was a second one called the best in the west and uh he plays sort of third banana to uh to the king of comedy from the philippines dolphy 
Um, and again, it's like this modern day Pinoy Western uh, from the from the uh, weirdo zone. <laughs> it's just yeah. nuts. Yeah. And, and the more you watch these, you know, the the weirder the Philippine film world becomes. It, it it really does operate on its own skewed sense of logic. Oh yeah, absolutely. Now, for for people, for most people that know his movies, I think he's kind of viewed as uh, an oddity or or some. I don't want to say someone to laugh at, but that's kind of the reality. And I think that um, most of his movies, they don't really take themselves seriously either. Um, my question is, when you were working on this film, were you concerned about making sure that, that your documentary was done like in a tasteful and like non-exploitive way? Well, you know, you have to admit that the side of a two foot nine James Bond bitch slapping a, a a three foot bond villain called mr giant i mean that that's absurd mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and that that's the starting point for the documentary you know it, it's me watching for your height only and going my god what am i watching and uh but then when uh when i started digging for information on wing wing and i started encountering just about everyone who ever worked with him um, who's still around uh you then start to get a sense of Wang Wang as a person, as a as a very kind of fragile human being, and um, by the time you get to Wang Wang's only surviving relative, and he's showing you his birth certificate and his death certificate, and telling you stories about, you know, him being viewed as a miracle birth, um, and and him being dressed up as a as a little child saint at the at the front of a Santo Nino parade. In the um, in the the poor part of Manila where they came from, you really do start uh, start to feel like you you're getting to know Wang Wang as a person, and I think at that point you can no longer help but do uh, you know almost a reverential treatment of mm-hmm. Wang Wang's story um, purely because you know he is such uh, so heartbreakingly human mm-hmm. uh, and, and um, such a fragile little human being who. Uh, wasn't destined to live past the age of about 30 uh, due to his condition, you know, primordial dwarfism, which, uh, you know, renders his body a completely miniature version of a human, uh, of a normal-sized human being with a a, a miniature circulatory system, which kind of gives out at the age of 30. And the fact that he, you know, uh, passed away just short of his 35th birthday is a miracle in itself. But um, when when his brother starts telling you stories about how he spent the first 12 months of his life in a shoebox uh, under a fluorescent tube, uh, you know, in this ultra-primitive version of a humidity crew, you know, in Manila circa 1957, you really do understand why they would look at him as a kind of miracle birth and, and uh, as, a, as almost like a reincarnated little Jesus. So, um, yeah, there, there are... There are layers to the story, but, but one of them is definitely reverential as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you have a Wang Wang tattoo, is that correct? Yeah, I got it in Manila on, I think, my fourth or fifth trip. Um, the guy looked at me. <laughs> he was covered in Hindu tattoos, and uh, he said, you, you want Wang Wang on your arm as a Catholic saint? I said, yeah, is that a problem? He goes, no, but how old are you? <laughs> He remembered Wang Wang from the first time around, and he said, I can't believe I'm doing this. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) 
you got the tattoo after you started working on the film? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think, uh, well, I, I decided that from now on, every film I work on, I'm going to get a tattoo so I can take my shirt off and say, this is my body of work. There you uh, go. Yeah, hey! <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, a cheap shot, but, you know, life is cheap, <laughs> especially. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about the Kickstarter project. So you're looking for a, a $30,000 goal. You have a month to go and you're almost halfway there. So I, I think that you're well on your way now. Uh, you're looking I to get, get overly confident, but, uh, but it's looking good. Um, you know, the, the feedback we've been getting is pretty positive. Yeah. Oh yeah. And everything's filmed. You're looking to get post-production, uh, costs, right? Pretty much. Yeah. There's, um, you know, clip rights, um, color grading, final edit, sound mix, that kind of stuff. Um, del- delivering the elements to the, uh, to our Australian distributor, who's also our international sales agent. So, I mean, we, we've got a DVD release and, and theatrical release in Australia already lined up, as well as, um, you know, connections with distributors overseas. It, it's it's almost like um, the release is a done deal. Mm-hmm. It's just getting that uh, coin together to try and pay for all of the cost of getting it up to release quality. And also there's um, there's about three or four grand in the budget to do one last shoot in the Philippines and do a lot of, um, you know, uh, stuff to camera, stage a, a, a dwarf wrestling match, um, in- interview the director of Chop Suey Met Big Time Papa, Wang Wang's second film, uh, who I just happened to run into on my last trip um, over goat soup in a, in a Quezon City drinkery. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, I, I think that that would um, just fill in the last two or three percent that we need to uh, to finish off the documentary. But I'm I, I was editing this morning, and uh, the whole thing's looking pretty damn good already. If I had to, I could finish the documentary next week, uh, and it would still be pretty much um, how I would want the finished film to be. How many How many times did you go over there to the Philippines? Uh, it's been eight trips so far. Eight trips. Wow. Wow. So eight eight trips. Yeah, and I, I now get to the stage where I'm um, doing lecture tours at universities in the Philippines, um, <laughs> teaching them their B-grade film history. It, it's it's surreal, you know. <laughs> swear to God, universities, and I'm up there saying, well, you know, the uh, the history of uh, Filipino pornography begins in 1969. Dot 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 dot. <laughs> so uh you know it, w- once you become so immersed in a project like this you know it it you end up like a sponge that's just waiting to be wrung out <laughs> oh yeah and uh, and uh man the the war stories that i'm having to leave out of search for wank wing just because there's no room for them i mean some of the some of the behind behind the scenes stories are, are so much weirder than the films could ever be well maybe maybe that's an idea for another documentary maybe for your next one, you explore a different aspect of Filipino cinema. Well, we've we've actually got um, one on the boil at the moment. The uh, the next documentary, not not the next action film, because we've already got a couple of scripts that we want to develop into proper action features. But the next film that we've already done the first interview for is a documentary on um, Philippine porn and the links between the Marcos regime and pornography. Uh, it turns out that the, the Marcos family were actually funding porn in an attempt to um, 
deflect criticism from their uh, you know regime in decline. Wow. And and because the Catholic Church was their their greatest uh, most vocal opponent, um, they decided to undercut any kind of criticism by giving the people exactly what they wanted, which was you know cheap, sensational, and ultra violent pornography. So um so the the first interview I did was with Imelda Marcos, weirdly enough, <laughs> and uh, and got her talking about porn and wang wang at her eighty third birthday. <laughs> Oh my. <laughs> this is what I mean. Like the, the some of the stories are even weirder than than the themselves. And and sitting in Amelda Marcos's bulletproof bus, getting a guided tour of of Marcos Town, oh my. And, and watching her, and watching her uh, kissing the glass coffin in which her frozen hus- husband lie in state. That, as far as I'm concerned, that's the weirdest, probably the weirdest moment of my life. And I got it on film as well. Oh, that's that's priceless. <laughs> that's first for Wing Wing's money shot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's talk about some of the incentives. You got a you got a bunch of good things. Are there any any things that you want to highlight to prospective backers? Well, you know, even fifteen dollars gets you a download of the movie, and uh, there's no such thing as an insignificant pledge. But uh, I think for fifty dollars, you can get a DVD and a bobblehead. I repeat, a wing bobblehead. Uh, you know, if if this wasn't my film, I would be salivating <laughs> the idea of wing bobblehead. Um, for a hundred bucks, it gets you everything: um, a DVD, uh, a, um, a bumper sticker, a T-shirt, um, a double disc edition of the movie. For two hundred bucks, you also get a thank you in the credits, in addition to all of the stuff. Um, and uh, it goes all the way up to the $10,000 deal, which is the executive producer package, where I fly you from wherever you are to Manila and take you on a week-long guided tour of Wangtown. Yes. <laughs> and, yeah. and and take you on a midget Monday bar crawl from Hobbit House all the way to Ringside, where you get to see the midgets wrestle in person. That sounds so amazing. <laughs> No one's taken me up on the ten grand deal yet, <laughs> but I, I look to playing, you know, the the uh, you know version of Tattoo from Fantasy Island, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> running around like Herbie Villachez, going they're playing, they're playing, <laughs> as, as you land at Manila International Airport. <laughs> well, yeah, I remember when uh, as soon as I saw the project uh, and I saw the the logo that you have. I was like, yes, well, this is definitely the one. This is the, the one. And I was looking through the incentives, and I saw the, the $10,000 one, and I was just, I think my mind was just completely blown off of that incentive. Yeah. <laughs> then you start looking at which organs you could sell in the black market. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, I, I, look, I, I, I personally would love to take someone on a, tour of Wangtown because you know after eight visits it you kind of feel like you're their unofficial ambassador mm-hmm. and uh, and and the, the the beautiful thing is that all of those guys who used to be in B films the directors the actors the cameramen they all pretty much still talk to each other they all hang out together they're our drinking buddies when we go over to um to the Philippines and so you know, I can I can take you to the bars. <laughs> you know, I can introduce you to all of these extras from Apocalypse Now, who now just sit around and swap war stories and uh, you know and plot and plan the next film. It's uh, it's really kind of neat. 
Yeah, that's that sounds so cool. Have you thought about what you're gonna do if you end up getting like way over your your goal? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm gonna get Eddie Nick out to uh, to you know recreate scenes from For Your Height Only, <laughs> uh, and and put that in the docker. You know, we we can afford a a decent animator to come up with some really cool segues. You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that. Um, you know, I'm I'm already planning on taking this overseas as, as a live show and stripping the, the voiceover, um, stripping the voiceover and doing it as a live show, doing the narration live um, oh. and framing the whole thing as, as almost like an interactive experience with the audience. Oh, I reckon that, that that would be neat because, you know, no one does that. Yeah, that would be great. That'd be great. Uh, well, Andrew, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us. Thanks for the call, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Cheers. Thanks again, Andrew. The film is Search for Wang Wang. We'll have the Kickstarter link in the show notes, and you can also get there through the Kickstart Sunday section of the website. Next up, Gina and I had a chance to speak with Shane Carruth on his new film, Upstream Color, which is currently playing in select cities. And if it's screening near you, I highly recommend checking this out. Let's take a listen. First, I want to thank you for speaking with us, and we're going to be as vague as possible <laughs> when it comes to talking about Upstream Color, because uh, it, it's certainly a film that the less you know, the better, I think. Okay. So um, my first question, it's been nine years since your last film, Primer, and I was wondering if you spent the majority of that time developing Upstream Color or if uh, a topiary consumed a lot of that time. Um, yeah, no, uh, I, it was all topiary all the time. Um, that's what that's where that's where those years went for the most part. Um, mm. The uh, the the story elements for Upstream were coming together sometime within the last couple of years. Actually, uh, I think for about a year, I was starting to to accumulate basically the exploration, the the core of the idea that we would be stripping away people's identities and narratives, and and uh, letting that uh, become our sort of gateway into an exploration of of how that stuff works. Um, and uh, yeah, it eventually reached the point where um, what, I w what I was stripping away from them seemed to be so severe and horrific that it, it also became very emotional. And uh, at that point, um, that's when I set everything else aside and I, I couldn't have done anything but uh, finish the film or make the film. Um, mm. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's a relatively recent thing. Um, so just to expand on um, going back to Upstream, just sticking with Upstream Color here, a unique aspect of your filmmaking, I think, is a mutual attraction and avoidance of structure at the same time. Um, you have these plot lines that are kind of strategically built and then they're really blurred. So I'm wondering if this is a science meets art kind of response or if there's another way you prefer us to think about it. Um, I definitely, uh, I guess I think about it in these terms, um, that what I'm really interested in is a story that has a architecture to it or a core to it that's really solid uh, or that I hope that it's solid. Um, that is, you know, all of, all of the narrative and the exploration, um, if you, it could potentially be repurposed in another medium um, mm -hmm. in the same way that, you know, the tortoise and the hare could be repurposed in, in a bunch of different ways, but at, at its core, it's still roughly the same story um, about the same ideas. That's, that's what I want from 
film. And and I think if that happens, then the way that you execute it, if you've got a solid enough framework, the way that you execute it could potentially be lyrical. You have the freedom to mm-hmm. to define the edges um, in, a, in a more fluid way. Uh, and that's uh, that's sort of the height of right now of the way I, I imagine, I mean, the way that I'd like to see how far we can push it with, with film. Um, uh, so that's what, I don't know, that's what I'm really passionate about. Talking about the characters a little bit, uh, in the beginning of the film, the connection between the prote- the protagonists kind of feels anything but romantic. I was wondering if uh, you can talk about the choice to uh, leave out the heart-based connection in favor of more of a, a psychic one. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, more or less we've got these characters that are um, being affected at a distance from things that are happening off screen, but they can't, they, they can't really know about them. They can only... They can only be pushed around by them emotionally or, mm-hmm. or you know, in, in some other subjective way. And so, yeah, when you've got these two people and they're meeting and everything says that this should be the beginning of, you know, potentially a relationship and it's antagonistic and full of tension, mm-hmm. um, that, I mean, that to me, it's, uh, I mean, first of all, that feels really familiar to me. Um, <laughs> not be able to understand why, you know, on paper, everything should be going well. And for some reason it is just not. Um, but in, in our, in our film, you know, it's, um, we, we actually have a plot that defines that as our way into, into that. And I think it, it, it continues throughout, throughout the course of Chris's arc. Um, she's continually experiencing the, the mania and hysteria and emotion of, of, of things that she can't speak to. Um, and so that was, you know, that relationship was just yet another way to show that. Now, you've been credited as working with uh, director Ryan Johnson on Looper. That's a widely known thing. However, uh, the effects work that you were kind of working with him on uh, proved to be too expensive to include in the film. And what I was wondering is, can we expect any of those ideas in maybe the Modern Ocean or, or a future project? The ideas that would have gone into Looper? Yeah, like oh. the maybe like the specific like effects work that you were kind of planning out. Oh no, I mean, you know, those were specific to Ryan's story. Um, no, yeah, I, um, I mean, I, I basically it was it was just when when people in that in that film had their their timelines rewritten, they would lose or or invent or you know be met with new memories, and so this was a way to sort of visualize that. Um, there was oh. sort of a. a, a um, a, uh, a free-flowing bit of almost gravel material that would flow over and around. Um, you know, for instance, um, old Joe's wife, when he when he when he loses his memory of her or potentially loses it, his wife would be overtaken with this this gravel, um, and it would flow in from different directions. And uh, and uh, yeah, that was I mean that was basically the 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 idea. And then um, we did a bunch of previs stuff to show how it would work. Um, and you know, it, 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 it would have been, it would have been something separate from their effects workflow. So that would have necessarily been a little bit more difficult because it was a whole new process that would have had to have been set up solely for this. And, uh, and then in the end, you know, he found such a great way to do it through performance and editing and, and the way he shot it, that it just wasn't necessary. Yeah. So you, so you were happy with the, the end result with how they showed that? Oh, with Looper? Yeah. Oh yeah. No, that was, that was the better choice, I think. Um, I mean, who knows what it would have looked like if we would have perfected it, but I mean, I'm not, he, he made the right choice. I mean, I, in upstream I, on a much, much smaller level, I, I sort of made, um, the same kind of choice. We had a lot of, 
really beautiful, intricate um, microscopic shots and, you know, in interior of Chris's bloodstream type shots. Um, and uh, there was a rough cut of the film that actually included some of these, maybe another, not, not even much more, probably another 40 seconds worth. Um, and I ended up having to take them out because it really was starting to feel like this is a film now about her bloodstream. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how did you, how did you go about filming that? Was it, was it practical, or did you use CG with that? Everything in the film is practical. Um, it started. I, I started doing some time lapse photography um, early on in the writing stage, just to be sure that we could sort of do it with our our, our setup. And um, and then later on, the production designer Tom Walker set up a whole wonderful thing in the in the back room of, of the house I was running, where we were. You know, we could do a lot of time lapse photography there, and. Um, or even real-time photography, but basically setting up these environments with like chicken breasts and red dye and all sorts of other things to make it look like um, you know the interior of her of her system. Um, yeah, it looked great. Oh, thanks. Yeah, so yeah, it's pretty exciting to be able to do that. And I mean, you know, it's so much work to to sort of reinvent the wheel because this stuff has already been done before. We just don't know how to do it, so we're having to <laughs> to trial and error our way through it. But yeah, it's pretty satisfying when you finally do get get the thing that looks right movie magic mm -hmm. yeah. we've got one hypothetical question we were going to ask you and it's totally okay. for fun and All you right. know they're just fun because they reveal something important because they're impossible right so if you were limited to just one aspect of filmmaking which would you choose and why um i would choose writing directing and, and i i would also say that i refuse to separate those because i think <laughs> they are essentially the same thing or should be um, but that would be, that's the thing I'm the most passionate about, um, is, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, just, just being able to, to, to figure out w what film can do. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, I just think it's really, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess that's, maybe I should back up because I don't, I, it, my passion is more for narrative than it is for film. It's just that film is currently what I think of as the height of what can be accomplished with a narrative with a right narrative. now. And maybe that's different in a hundred years, but right now I just think it's the most, it's the most effective form of storytelling that we have. Um, and so, yeah, that's what I would say. Is there any, um, jobs that you haven't done yet in filmmaking that you're planning on tackling next, like catering or <laughs> anything, anything like that? Well, I think this, this next film is going to have a level of, um, practical effects or practical action that's much bigger in scale. So I know that, I know, I mean, we're talking about, you know, ships at war basically and, and privateers and pirates and some action um, elements. And I know that that's going to have to get solved. And I know that even as I'm approaching it in the writing, I know that I want another, I want another avenue to get there. Um, so mm. I don't know what that means. I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to be the guy who's figuring out how to do squibs and yeah. stuff, but um Something about it's going to get figured out. I'm sure we'll we'll approach this from from some different direction. So I'll get my hands dirty somehow on that. Very nice. Yeah. Exciting. I think we just have one more question for you, and I think that um, Adam really wants to ask this question. Oh yeah. Uh, were they in fact starlings? <laughs> uh, great question. Um, <laughs> I think they honest. Well, I think they were actually grackles. I think they actually were grackles. They were um, grackles. That's a, that's a flock of, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a breed of bird that, that, that comes through town at that time of year 
and uh, every year. And so, you know, that's something that I've I've always wanted to to grab, and it and I definitely wanted it for this story. Um, uh, and so we sort of we actually waited because there's only like a three or four day span of time that they'll come through town and just flock or or just you know uh, uh, plague basically the the different um, uh, um, parking lots there in town. Um, and so we waited for him, and we made sure that we sh- we shot that scene in the in the in the time that they would be there. Oh, that's great! That was like my biggest burning question. I know <laughs> with this movie. <laughs> well, aside minds. from all the, aside from everything else, I needed to know that. <laughs> well, Shane, thank you so much for your time. We love the movie, yeah. and uh, best of luck with uh, all the. I'm sure rigorous promotion you're doing right now. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. And thank you for your time. Uh, I really appreciate the questions. A big thanks to Shane for taking some time to speak with us again. I highly recommend checking out upstream color. And if you haven't seen his previous film primer, I would also recommend checking that out. It's currently playing on Netflix instant for our final interview this week. I had a great conversation with Joey Ansa about his Kickstarter project street fighter assassins fist. So let's get right into that. I guess the first question I have for you is what are you a big fan of the Street Fighter games and maybe what drew you into doing this project? Uh, yeah, well to answer your first question, I'm a massive fan of the games and I've been playing them pretty consistently since the last 20 years I'd say. So um if not longer than that from when Street Fighter 2 first mm-hmm. came out on the Super Nintendo and in the arcades. Um, so, yeah, I've been a massive martial I mean, I've done martial arts my whole life, and I think a lot of martial artists, particularly that have gone into some of the more extreme performance-based stuff, have been influenced by Street Fire and by the moves, you know, mm-hmm. the styles and the special moves of it. Um, so, yeah, I've been, a, I've been a massive gamer and a fan of Street Fire for forever, and it's it was the two they, as you know there've been two live action Street Fighter films the first mm-hmm. with Van Damme and then the more recent Legend of Chun Li and I just found Legend of Chun Li so disappointing I thought <laughs> some, something needs to be done <laughs> and by this point I'd been in the kind of movie business and Hollywood system long enough to know how these kind of things were structured and I just realised we are never going to get a faithful film. Until, unless someone like myself, who genuinely cares about the brand, above making money. Of course, I've not put all this effort into this process for nothing. But my priority is making an integrity, you know, a great um, project with integrity first. And and, and that will speak for itself and hopefully, you know, do good business, you know. Who Who was your guy? Who was your character? Um... From way back, I always played with Ryu and Ken, but Guile, yeah, I'm one of those people that jumps between charge characters and mm. and the kind of Haddo characters, but I'm well-rounded. I can play with anyone, you know, and in the more recent versions, Akuma um, ah, nice. is, is probably my guy. So um, I take it that you, now with with the series, and this is our, normally we just do films, so this is our first uh, web series that we are speaking with someone about, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about the dynamics of how the web series works, and maybe if you, like, where you're going to be airing it, if you have any ideas with that yet. 
Okay, so it's an interesting one because what we're trying is 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 something slightly new. Is to think of this essentially as a TV series in terms of format. It's just that online and web is one of the first distribution channels we want to target because that's we feel we can hit our target audience quickest and best online. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been written as commercial half hours, so that's 22 minutes, you know, mm-hmm. in normal talk. Um, but it will also work. Our plan for the DVD is like a chapterized movie. If you think of the Kill Bill movies, the way Tarantino had chapter cards come up between mm-hmm. different acts in the movie, think of this like that. So it would actually, it will work as a serialized piece with kind of your classical pseudo cliffhanger on the end. But if you edited all those chunks together, you would have, you know, over a two hour feature epic feature. Oh, okay. Um, so the plan would be for to go out online first. Cause that's, we know, we know where our target audience is. The success of street fighter legacy, for example, mm-hmm. that short sort of pilot proof of concept we did a couple of years back. Um, we know where our fans are so we thought partly this is a love letter to the fans and it's like a lot of these um films based on beloved properties or franchises the studios often make them for the wider audience so they dilute the the source material and try and get bums on seats of all demographics right whereas i'm like no i want this to go the gamers should be rewarded for it they're the ones that built up this brand in the first place yeah. Give it to them first, market it to them first, and then let it propagate to the wider audience from that nucleus. I always feel if you've got a really hardcore fan base that are making positive noise about it, it's going to spread. Word of mouth and hype, it's going to spread. Rather than trying to target kids, the female demographic, the older demographic, the younger demographic, all in one PG-13 you know, package. Mm-hmm. I want to do a proper story that serves the story right. And if it's dark where it needs to be dark, it's violent where it needs to be violent. Um, and it's, you know, it's being made for the right reasons. But to succinctly answer your question, the series will probably go online, possibly even in 11-minute episodes. So the online version, because keep the contents sort of shorter and snappier, mm-hmm. but maybe 12, 11-minute blocks um, then I'm sure VOD services like Netflix and whatnot, and then eventually the DVD Blu-ray, where it'd be available to view in the commercial half-hour format as it was written, and as an edited together chapterized movie as well. That's great. Well, yeah, the thing that really drew me into this project to begin with was that I did see Street Fighter Legacy several years ago. I guess it was what almost three years ago now that it came out. Yeah, two, two and three quarter it was. Yeah, time's flown by. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, "This has to be made." This, and then I didn't hear anything for a long time, and I was like, "I wonder if they're ever going to bring that back." And then, I, so as soon as I saw this pop up, I was like, "Yes, this has to be made." <laughs> I'm, I'm so excited for this because I'm a big Street Fighter fan as well, and I was not. You know, I was let down by the movies, too. And, and I think that a lot of video game fans are consistently let down with properties that are adapted into TV or movies for the, for the, the reasons that you said. So I guess my next question is, uh, you, you touched on it briefly, 
uh, you're not going to be like restricting yourself uh, as far as the content. So if it takes a, a more ad- adult, darker theme, you're planning on taking it there if need be. Yeah, I mean, look, Street Fighter is inherently not a uber gory or violent property. Right. It's, it's not a Mortal Kombat. But if you look at because of the the subject matter that this series is tackling, which is all of the Ansatsuken characters, i.e., Ryu Ken. Goki, Goken, Gotetsu, the three generations of that and Satsuken style. Um, anyone that knows the kind of Street Fighter lore will know that Akuma kills his master, Gotetsu, mm-hmm. and he uses the Shingokusats, the raging demon, on him. Now, you're not going to show the effects of the raging demon as just being someone lying there calmly, not moving. Right. You know, It's basically destroying your key from the inside out and it's almost going to explode out of your body so in the way that the animes if you look at the street fighter animes they weren't uber violent but there were moments where yeah i was going to reference that yeah so think of that tone it's by no means we're using gore or blood as a as a tool for shock if anything but where you think okay that was a kill shot there or that's i don't expect the person to be in good shape in any way or form after that that will be the case you know what i mean mm-hmm. absolutely yeah no i think that that's a that's a good choice to go with with that so um can you reveal any of the characters that you plan i know that you mentioned a few already any other ones that might be making an appearance uh well what we as you you may have noticed we've been rolling out cast announcements mm-hmm. um this week we're kind of releasing one or two a day so so far we've announced Togo Igawa, who mm-hmm. is a fantastic, you know, veteran Japanese actor, you know, born in Japan, Japanese, but he's lived in actually England much of his life um, and has done over a hundred movies. I mean, this guy is like one of the best actors oh, yeah. out there and has been in so many great films. Um, so he's playing Gotetsu, which is, for those that don't know, Gotetsu is. Uh, Goken and Goki, or Akuma's master. Mm-hmm. Um, so the story kind of starts with him. We've then got Goki and Goken in it, naturally. And we've got Ryu and Ken. But we'll have different incarnations of the characters because it's quite it's a non-linear storyline in which it jumps back and forward in time. What should be said and is cool is that it's not like it's just in the present with Ryu and Ken, and we, and we get the odd little flashback to the past. There's a full-on parallel storyline. So, although the series will start kind of in the present with you and Ken and their training, and they're just about to begin training Hado. So, when the story starts with them, they haven't actually learned to do Hado Kens or Tatsumaki's or Shoryukens yet. Mm-hmm. They're very high level, at kind of mortal level martial arts ability of, of, of the Ansatsuken style, but Goken has been holding off for for reasons unknown, kind of ushering them into the world of Hado. And you begin to realize that he's scared. What is he scared of? And that mm. unlocks questions and probing. And as he finally relents and crosses that line that he feels is a point of no return, once I expose these boys to this ability, are the dark demons of my past now gonna come for them. You see what I mean? So you realize that, okay, Goken had a dark, tragic past that his students don't know anything about and we don't. 
and we gradually then the series starts going back to when he was Ryu and Ken's age, mm-hmm. trained with Goki, and we begin to so we see the two boys, Goken. There's a female character that we haven't announced yet, but she'll be announced soon enough. Um, and we see their training, and we see you know all the key events that happen, the tragedies that happen, and how Goki essentially becomes Akuma the demon, you know, and how the two brothers end up representing such separate ideals. You have one, on one hand, Goki or Akuma, who completely is consumed by Satsui no Hado, and then you have someone like Goken who's sworn not to really use it again and has turned to a purer way, the power of nothingness, you know? Right. References to Gen are in there. Anyone who knows their Street Fighter lore knows that Gen has uh, is integrally tied into Akuma and um, Goken's storyline. Um, so it's great. It's super layered. It's super detailed. I mean, it even starts at the end of World War Two. Gotetsu oh. having fought in World War Two as a you know sort of high-ranking major in the Japanese military, and oh, wow. he's returned post-war he's an old you know he's getting old now and if and he's the last ansatsuken master so he he adopts two um two orphaned brothers whose parents died you know during the war they in fact in this their far goken and goki's father served under gotetsu in the war and passed away in his service for him so almost as a debt of honor gotetsu adopted these guys, this guy's kids, and has made them, you know, the next, the next heirs to the Ansatsuken. Everything has been given an explanation. The beads that Akuma wears, for example, are essentially the crown of Ansatsuken. That almost like the Highlander films. There mm-hmm. can only be one. But Ansatsuken lore and kind of backstory we've expanded and created and gone into great detail that those beads have almost been passed from master to master down generation. And whoever holds and wears those beads is the undisputed master. But someone is always going to find you out and challenge you and ultimately kill you or be killed by you, you know? So Mm -hmm. those beads carry a lot of blood with them. Right. So it sounds like you're taking um, a more realistic... Uh, approach to the story similar to what the the Mortal Kombat web series did and I'm sure that a lot of people are are comparing your project to that one as well is is that the case and if so in the future how might you tackle some of the the more outlandish you know creatures that are in the Street Fighter universe Um, yeah we're staying true I'm not going for this you know, this obsession with, yeah, let's go Nolan gritty. You right, know, gritty and dark, yeah. I'm into quite dark stuff. Like the first Blade film, for example, Wesley Snipes. Massive fan of. It was so dark, it was so unforgiving. Um, and, it, and it defied all the regular cliches of filmmaking. Typically, his weakness by convention should have been the girl, mm-hmm. but it wasn't. By convention, he should have got the girl at the end and they should have had a romance. That didn't happen. You know, mm-hmm. like Blade was very brave and very unforgiving. You just thought this is such a badass character because, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so few, so few. Fil- I didn't like this, the two and three particularly, but so few films are that brave. And with Street Fighter, by no means are we saying, "Oh, let's let's dumb it down." And how would it be? It's just 
grounding it in a world that you can relate to at the end of the day. It would be very easy to make a very two-dimensional uh, anime-esque world to set this in. Mm-hmm. Where you're like, yeah, I recognize the characters and they wear the same costumes and they've got the same hair and they do the moves. And that's it. No, I want you to almost almost forget that, that it's got a fantastical element. And I think that's one of the choices for starting at a point narratively before Ryu and Ken have even learned Haddo. So the audience have to earn seeing it as well. Mm-hmm. It's not like fireballs are flying around the place from the get-go. Right. And you'll understand the science of Haddo. We're not just saying, oh, they can do this shit because the script says so. Mm-hmm. And this universe, that stuff can just happen. No, there's almost a scientific breakdown of how Satsuno Haddo works, how Power of Nothingness works, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's look at pseudoscience. For example, um, there's been more and more empirical research into acupuncture mm-hmm. and meridians and key and then chi, however you want to call it. And the fact that acupuncture, for some reason, is affecting brain activity. When they've done MRI scans on brain activity or CT scans during acupuncture, they're realizing that the areas of the brain that deal with pain are being switched off or less excited by a needle being in a specific point. And Mm -hmm. although it's not been fully explained by science, they're starting to acknowledge the scientific medical community that acupuncture does have an effect physiologically. So let's assume we have key flowing through meridians in our body, just in the same way we have electricity flowing through our body. Right. There are those rare individuals you see on these crazy shows that can conduct at will, discharge electricity from their body and give you a shock at will, mm-hmm. or up a light bulb on their skin. Now, imagine if through meditation you could start to manipulate your key and discharge it. You could either channel your key into your fist or into your muscles to make you, for a split second, they contract super hard and you jump super high, you know? Mm-hmm. Or your fist becomes nigh-on indestructible for that split second when you channel your key into it. And ultimately, if you could channel it and discharge it, hence that's how a Hadoken comes from. So just, I mean, that's just a very brief explanation, but through the process, you'll almost feel that, yeah, you could give someone a lecture on how to eventually train to produce Hado, you know what I mean? Yeah, when I, and that that's actually an aspect that I really like where uh, it sounds like you kind of ease into it. Like you said, it's not like crazy fireballs shooting at the beat right from the get-go and how it, it kind of makes sense out of all of it. And I think that that's one thing that a lot of people, a lot of fans look for in movies, TV, and, and like comic books even where they, they kind of want things explained is why why does this work why can they how can they do this and i think that it's that's kind of an interesting dynamic that you're taking there where you actually get detailed enough where you say well this is how it works and this is why it makes sense you know and i think that that's a really good idea and it's yeah to not do so is just lazy script writing in my opinion i mean that's why films like the matrix there's two examples the matrix um, what was my other example I was going to use? Um, let's start with The Matrix. The way Neo's path to becoming the One was a very gradual process. They didn't throw you in at the beginning with God Neo. You know, right. mm-hmm. you had to go through that process of training and realization and self-belief 
along vicariously through his character. So by the time in the subway fight, he's like, no, I'm going to stay and take on this agent. I'm not going to run like everyone else. You know, you're watching it and you're like, fuck me. You know, he, <laughs> he's starting to believe in his ability. I've started to see his ability. Mm-hmm. I believe he can take this guy, maybe. You know, and so by the time he's flying around in Matrix Reloaded, you get it and you accept it. And you're mm-hmm. not saying this is ridiculous. You, because it's been such a, it's a, such a graduation to that point. And um, Star Wars, I think, was so captivating just because in A New Hope, Kenobi's gradual training of the Force, and mm-hmm. it's something that Luke had to pick up gradually, and as both in terms of physical training and philosophical, conceptual um, knowledge, further to Luke's training on Dagobah with, um, with Yoda, Yoda, you know? Mm-hmm. It's great that so people, you know, those obsessive Star Wars fans out there feel that they could give you a thesis on the Force. I mean, when they threw in the whole midichlorian thing, that kind of conflicted, you know, it conflicted its own backs, you know, kind of canon. So that was probably an erroneous move on Lucas's part. But up to that point, you know, people really felt that you could become a scholar of the rules of the Star Wars universe and the Force. And you know what I mean? And say he can do this because of that. And and that's what I wanted to do with this. I mean, Star Wars is a is a good reference in that you've got the those universal story sort of telling themes of father versus son, brother yeah. versus brother conflict, the light side and the dark side. The dark side potentially giving you more power, but at what cost? Mm-hmm. What you have to sacrifice in order to obtain that power. And how sustainable is it? Th- those concepts go right back to kind of the great Greek, you know, right. storytelling, the Iliad and Old Testament biblical stuff. Th- these are the stories that kind of modern civilization has been built on. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the great modern contemporary films really find out how to crit- sort of distill those the essences of those compelling story themes. And I think I think that everybody loves it, the journey too, and I think that that's one thing that's going to make this this story really unique and and interesting. You're right. Yeah, I mean that's a really good point you've made. The journey in inverted commas, you know, like kickboxer. I mean, having been a martial artist, most most martial artists you'll meet that kind of are thirty and above that grew up in the eighties will say that their inspirations were. Bruce Lee and Jackie, but also Van Damme, especially oh, yeah. for Westerners. Yeah. You know? Bloodsport. Blood, Bloodsport and Kickboxer mm-hmm. are true warrior's journeys, particularly Kickboxer, because, yeah, he's already got some skills as a fighter, but Uncle Zien kind of is like, I'm going to build you from the ground up again. Mm-hmm. And that process, all those training montages and seeing him do his first few Muay Thai fights and the whole Tong Po conflict coming closer it was a real journey and after that film you had to go out and start training you 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 were compelled to you know you know Mm -hmm. what i mean and there are so few warriors journeys told anymore how when was the last time you saw a film that honestly made you think i have to get up and go to the gym or go and dedicate myself to some kind of physical and philosophical pursuit um honestly i can't think of any it's a long time. Exactly. I mean, you've got to go back to like the okay, Warrior. Maybe Warrior with Warrior Tom. was good. Yeah, that that'd be a good example. 
I think that gave you enough of a buzz to, yeah, I think as a modern film that would in, encourage someone to take up a fight sport and dedicate a large portion of their life at that time to training and self-improvement. Warrior, but they're so slim on the ground now, aren't they? Right. I mean, look what the Rocky films did. I'm sure 80% of people boxing, you know, again, over a certain age started because of Rocky, you know? Yeah, I'm sure, yeah. And I think the world needs things, you know, posit- not just sort of mindless entertainment that you see, you enjoy, and then you kind of forget, but entertainment that stays with you, that you want to reanalyze and re-philosophize and discuss, and that gives you some kind of inspiration to actually excite you enough to do something in the real world that's, you know, similar, you know? Well, um, I want to switch gears just a little bit, and... So you're a fan of the games, you have the, the story down, mm. and I want to just talk about your body of work a little bit, just as, which is basically just the icing on the cake that, that kind of solidifies that you're the guy that should be taking care of this, this property. So you, you um, work as an actor, right? And you, you do like uh, stunt work. Uh, you were in The Bourne Ultimatum. Yeah, one of my favorite movies of 2011, Attack the Block, which I absolutely love. And cool. I, I was wondering if you're using some of the the skills and uh, filmmaking things that you've learned in working in these other pictures. If you're kind of translating that into this series. Oh yeah, I mean, completely. So to, to kind of set the record straight, I'm an actor. I've been a professional actor. For nine years now um, and I was still working show business before that um, believe it or not I did a degree in human biology <laughs> in in Oxford but whilst I was doing that degree I already knew that look, I love academia and learning but it's not what I want to do with my life in terms of a career mm-hmm. um, and I knew doing something with my martial arts or show business was where I wanted to go so I started um, breaking in whilst whilst doing my degree and Batman Begins was the first big studio feature that I worked on mm-hmm. um, now up to that point I think this goes for a lot of action guys or stunt guys starting out as a kid you kind of ignorantly think that a stunt man and an action star or action actor are one and the same Right. So you kind of think if I become a stunt man I'll end up getting to do those cool fight scenes on screen and getting to do those cool moves and looking badass like Jackie Chan or whatever. Mm-hmm. But maybe in the 80s, that would be true. You had a good physique, you had some good skills, you could have had zero acting experience, you may get a shot at a lead in a B-movie that was getting theatrical release back then. But as we know, the world has changed a lot since the 80s, and the action stars of today, 90% of them, are straight-up dramatic actors that just train up for the role. Mm-hmm. You know, because audiences for theatrical releases have come to expect a, a better standard of acting. And, you know, theatrical releases are so expensive now because of marketing costs, etc., etc. So I was thinking I'll become a stunt man. And there was the kind of urban myth, which is, I guess, true going around that Ray Park originally in Star Wars was cast to be the stunt double or fight double for Darth Maul. And mm-hmm. that there was actually another actor cast to play him but when lucas saw ray park in full you know motion he's like shit this is the guy you know right. let's just have him as the actor who can do all his own stunts as well 
So a lot of guys sort of doing martial arts and acrobatics and tricks heard this and were like, straight up, I'll become a stuntman. And the same thing will happen to me, you know? Mm -hmm. But you suddenly realize like, no. So Batman Begins was really important because it was the turning point where I suddenly was like, hang on, I've got this wrong. I don't want to be a stuntman. I want to be an actor who can do his own stunts. Yeah. Because I love action and doing all the cool fights and flips and stuff. I, I, lo I love it. But as a young actor, sit standing there and watching Christian Bale, I was in the League of Shadows, so you know, in the mountains mm -hmm. you know, where, where Bruce Wayne trained. So all that section of the film, and just being able to watch day after day, Ken Watanabe and Liam Neeson and Christian Bale, you know, mm -hmm. just doing dialogue and drama and tense stuff. I was like, some of the stuff, it's like, you know, the hairs are standing up on the back of your neck. And you're like, this is what I need to be doing. Mm-hmm. If I can do that and have that effect on people and also do insane action, you know, then that's the best of both worlds. So suddenly from then it was like, forget getting on the stunt register. In the UK, all professional stuntmen are on a stunt register and there's kind of a process uh, to get qualified to go on that. Mm -hmm. So I thought, stop doing that, focus on becoming a serious, sort of respected, dramatic actor and then keep the action keep my training up naturally, but keep the the ability to do my own action as the kind of extra string to my bow. Um, so that's what starts. I started acting and doing dramatic stuff and, and, and building up, you know, dramatic kind of credits, non-action related stuff. But at the same time was also doing, getting into choreography, action direction, and still training insanely in martial arts and acrobatics and whatnot. And then the Bourne after three years, the Bourne Ultimatum came along as my sort of big Hollywood break. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, I knew when that role came along that I'm going to, you know, I'm going to smash it. It was kind of like one of those destiny moments mm -hmm. where I honestly feel there's no one on earth better suited to nail this role than me. You know? <laughs> and it's really it's you know, God, I've auditioned for so many projects since then, but very few have I felt like that. Like, mm -hmm. you 100% confident that you could go up against anyone and you would nail it more than them. Yeah, and, and you, and you went up against Matt Damon in that one. <laughs> <laughs> but that was so cool. I mean, that film was like... you can. I was a fan of the franchise already, you see. Mm -hmm. It's different. Most actors' big breaks could be in a, a, an original film that's right. got no franchise and that would be great and think how many theatrical films come out that you've forgotten about two minutes later mm -hmm. but to be in like i just watched born supremacy whilst filming the first feature film that i ever did after university i remember watching born supremacy in the cinema and for then three years later to actually be in the next born right I, I try and explain it to people i mean like look i'm an actor that's done some big stuff but i still like to geek out and i find it sad when you see actors that have lost that enthusiasm or buzz right. or kind of act like they're a bit above it all now like i try and explain the porn experience for me would be like most of you guys out there you've grown up watching indiana jones films mm -hmm. and you've seen you know what his hat looks like you know what his whip looks like you know all the items of clothing he wears imagine being able to jump into the screen Mm -hmm. and, and see him you're now seeing Indy <laughs> on the set and if you want you could put his hat on you could hold his whip you know you could examine the character in a level of detail that is impossible right for anyone else looking at it through a screen and you're getting to 
interact with the character, both the actor, but also the the character once the cameras are rolling. You know, I often laugh because me and Matt Damon got on so well, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a really good time and, and a really good rapport. So between takes, I was Joey, he was Matt. But once we were rolling, particularly in that fight scene, it's like, that's Jason Bourne. Yeah. Jason Bourne is actually... Th- There's one moment during choreography, bam, 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 I'm slipping punches he's throwing me. And I'm like, Jason Bourne is throwing punches at my head. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, real talk, this is actually happening. This isn't some <laughs> fucked up dream. This is actually <laughs> happening. If I don't get out of the way, I would get my nose broken by Jason Bourne. <laughs> and it's surreal. And it, it's surreal. And, and it's that's the reward, I guess, if you do make it in this industry and you get to work on a project that you utterly respect. Mm-hmm. It is magical. It's magical being part of the process and then seeing the end product and seeing people's reaction to it is um is a high kind of like no other you know yeah absolutely um um i want to get back to the the kickstarter campaign just a second but i did notice that you're in the upcoming green street hooligans um i guess it's the third one in the series yeah and that I'm very excited about. It's almost a reboot. Think of it; it's still kind of within that universe, but it mm-hmm. hasn't. It's not carrying any of the characters forward from that. So that film was a huge undertaking for me. I co-starred in it with Scott Atkins. Mm-hmm. We'll talk in a sec. Um, I action directed it and choreographed it. Oh wow! So I, I'll, you could easily say I action designed the film. So by that, I design choreographed the fights. I shoot them every camera move and kind of, you know, mm-hmm. steady cam shot and, and, and shot size, angle, lens size, I'm choosing that. And then I'm editing the fights as well. And even overseeing the sound design on the fights. So when you see a film like that from start to finish, it's had my touch on it that's been untampered with or interfered with, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. And it's a great. And working with Scott Atkins, as most of, any action film fans out there will know Scott is um, a force of nature and he's one of the best screen fighters and action guys out there at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. You need to see the undisputed two and three. Um, oh, he's a, he, I mean, yeah, he's in a ton of stuff too. I think he was in like the Expendables two. Exactly. And... Expendables two. He did a film called Ninja. He's just finished Ninja two, the sequel. He had a part in Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah, Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah. So he's doing well. Scott deserves it. I mean, he's been in the industry for a long time, and he's literally given blood and sweat and put down on tape some of the best on-screen fight scenes ever and difficult stuff. You know, it's it's not unless you're a performer yourself that does the kind of stuff. Can you truly appreciate what another performer's gone through? to achieve what you're seeing on screen, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I um, mean, I, I'm always a huge, I love the, f- the first green street hooligans movie to death. So as soon as I saw that on your filmography, I was like, Oh, I got to ask him about this. It's cool. I think it's going to be a real cult film. We've just finished post on it. Lionsgate are distributing. Um, oh, cool. I think in August time is when it's coming out. I mean, I hope we get to premiere it at a festival like Toronto and get it into Midnight Madness. Oh, that'd be know? great, because I'll be there. <laughs> oh, great, because that's you know that's where the raid blew up. Right, um, yep. Last year, and if people dug the raid, I mean, this Green Street has so much action in it. So it's crazy. 
you know it's definitely going to be like okay i haven't seen a film like this ever possibly you know i don't want to give give too much away but definitely look out for it i'm glad that you've kind of got that on your radar oh yeah i'm i'm really excited for that i'm i'm always i was such a big fan i like for some reason i just like all hooligan movies sure sure so that that always draws me in um getting back to the kickstarter project i want to talk about um the incentives that you got going are there any highlights that you might want to uh promote to to people that might be looking to back the project yeah wow kickstarter so it's kind of at the moment i mean i'll be honest in saying that we're not getting propagation is the key to a successful uh kickstarter campaign right getting the awareness out there right um to hit a target like we require or asking for we need about 15 to to 25,000 backers and that's donating anywhere from the lowest amount of like one pound which is probably a dollar fifty um up to the larger ticket items Mm -hmm. Um, and there is there are so many street fighter films out there as we know street fighter 4 must have sold about three million copies Mm -hmm. so the fans are out there it's just reaching them now the videos we've done um are in the tens of thousands but we need them to be in the hundreds of thousands you Mm -hmm. know We've offered a range of stuff, and we're going to continue to update the pledges. What we want to offer definitely is a chance to be in the film. There is um, a specific scene in mind that could do with extras, mm-hmm. and there's a couple of parts that would inter soldier roles that would interact with Ryu and Ken without giving too much away. Um, so, as the campaign goes on, we want to try and make that available to people. Um, but it ranges from stuff like the DVD itself. A lot of people asking, is there a Blu-ray? Yes, we're going to make a Blu-ray, and we'll update the pledges probably to reflect that fact. Mm-hmm. Um, to limited edition T-shirts, to signed um, sort of 10 by, eight, to 10 by 8 photos of the characters signed by the cast, right up to some of the actual costume and prop um, mm-hmm. items, such as the gloves or the actual geese themselves, the full, the full outfits. Oh, that's um, great to set visits, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we've had to put this campaign together quite quickly. So it's a really interesting, um, almost experimental experience to see what people want, what people don't want, what people find is too expensive or too little, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I mean, we we talk to a lot of people that have Kickstarters going, and, and I would say that, that yours is looking quite good. I mean, your, uh, your incentives and your... Uh, uh, gifts that you're giving are, are pretty pretty on par i mean they're really good actually so i think you hit, i think you hit the nail on the head with that one it's just i think one of the issues is to listeners out there particularly ones in the states the way kickstarter works is there's a u.s kickstarter site in which all the bids are automatically in dollars if you do not live in the united states however we're a uk-based production company you have to have a UK registered mm-hmm. business, social security number, you name it. You have to be a, a citizen in the United States in order to do a US Kickstarter. So we have to use the UK Kickstarter, and you can only have the pledges in pounds. Right. So it's a bit of a disadvantage because the US Kickstarter, the minimum pledge is $1. 
But the UK Kickstarter, the minimum pledge is one pound, which is probably like one dollar fifty or one dollar sixty. So through conversion, the Americans will be paying a bit more. We've done our best to make it as clear as possible, but there's no other way around it. We cannot use the the US Kickstarter site, and a lot of people are asking, why isn't it in dollars? If it was in dollars, you know, or can't you use PayPal? No, PayPal doesn't work with Kickstarter. You know. If you're pledging to a US Kickstarter campaign, you need to use an Amazon account. If you're pledging to a UK-based Kickstarter campaign, you have to use a credit or debit card. Yep. Yep. Um, which is quite simple. But I think still some it, it's causing I know a lot of Americans are a bit unsure about other currencies, and that's a bit of a um kind of block or obstacle to them. And you still get, we, you know, we're trying to field as many questions as possible that are coming in. Um, and I think our second week, as in next week of the campaign, we're going to kind of come back with a updated strategy, having analysed what issues people are having um, and trying to mend it and throw in a few more um, incentives as well. Great, great. All right, well, thank you so much, Joey, for taking some time to uh, speak with us. Best of luck on this series i cannot wait to see this and uh best of luck with the um all your acting projects looks like you have a bunch coming up so there's another the number station with john kuzak that comes out i think 26th of this month yes uh, yeah that comes out soon look out for that um me versus kuzak (laughs) nice check it out all right well thanks so much joey nice one it was a pleasure and let's chat again soon hopefully Thanks again, Joey. Make sure to check out the Kickstarter page. We'll have the link in the show notes as well as on the site. So all you Street Fighter fans, quit being cheap bastards and toss in some shekels. That'll do it for this week. We'll be back with our regular format for next week. Until then, for all the latest film news and reviews, visit us at filmpulse.net. We want to hear your feedback. Send us an email, feedback at filmpulse.net. Follow us on Twitter at filmpulse.net. And be sure to rate us on iTunes. We appreciate that very much. For filmpulse.net, my name is Adam, and we will see you next week.